Good morning again, everybody. Can I have you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 4. As we are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And um, if you've been with us, then you know what has been going on. We saw how that the book opened up with the death of Saul uh, in battle. And after his death, of course, God had said to David, David was to replace Saul at one point. But after Saul was killed in battle, uh, Saul's general, Abner, decided that, you know, he didn't really want to give up his position as top guy, military guy in the kingdom. And so he took Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, and set him up on the throne as a vassal king. Abner was really the power behind the throne. And, but eventually they had a falling out, as we saw last week. And Abner decides he's going to go over to David's side now. All right? I think he saw the handwriting on the wall. Uh, it was a civil war that was going on for seven and a half years. And uh, chapter 3 opens up, but the house of David grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And Abner was no fool. He figured, you know what? Uh, I'm going to need to change teams here but I want to do it in such a way as I don't lose face. So I think he set up a little ruse where he um, slept with one of Ishbosheth's concubines. We talked about this last week and um, didn't hide it too much because he wanted Ishbosheth to accuse him of this so he could, you know, feign righteous indignation. How dare you, you know, accuse me of such a horrible crime, that kind of thing. I'm going over to David's side. And so he went over to David's side and began to immediately rally the remaining tribes that were loyal to Saul, Saul's family, to come over to and be loyal to David. David was the guy that God had said was going to be king in Saul's place. Abner said basically to the tribes that were loyal to Saul, look, you know what God has said. Why don't you guys come on? Let's get behind David. He's the rightful king, so on and so forth. Well, Joab, David's general, didn't like the competition and didn't trust Abner, so he killed him. He killed him. And uh, that's where chapter 4 opens up. After the death of Abner in Hebron, Ishbosheth lost heart. And here's what happened. I mean, uh, his general was now gone. And, you know, he just felt, I guess, very vulnerable at this point. And around this time, he had two captains that uh, possibly were left over from his dad's administration, but two captains of his army. And they decided along, you know, that Abner had gone. Now they're going to defect over to David, uh, over to David's side as well. But they figured, you know what? We really want to show David we're loyal. We want to prove our zeal to him. How could we do that? Well, why don't we knock off Ishbosheth, remove any competition? This will solidify the kingdom behind David. He'll reward us because, after all, we're serving him. We're killing his enemy. And so that's what they did. They snuck into Ishbosheth's house. The heat of the day was he was on his bed lying down. They uh, stabbed him, killed him, cut his head off, brought the head to David, thinking David was going to reward them, you know, handsomely. Because, after all, we've taken care of your enemy. You know, the house of Saul has now been completely done away with. David... Everyone's going to get behind you now with all their hearts and so on and so forth. Uh, David didn't meet their enthusiasm as they thought he would. They thought, well, you know, David's going to reward us, maybe make us captains in his army. But David said, you know what? He said, basically, we know that David never looked at Saul and his family's enemies. 
David loved Saul. David, uh, Saul was a mentor to David. And so others had read the situation wrong. Even Saul believed that David was out to get him. But David had a couple of opportunities that we saw in 1 Samuel where he could have killed Saul but didn't. And basically said, Saul, why do you listen to people that are telling you I want to hurt you? I, I love you. I respect you. But there were those who were still believed that Saul's family was against David. And so these two guys figured by killing Ishbosheth, well, we're serving David. All right? We're serving David. And he'll reward us. But instead, David said, you know, you killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. And you want me to reward you? And he had a couple of his young soldiers take and execute these two guys. Guys, it was a classic example of there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. And that's really kind of what I want to build this message on this morning. I've entitled it Misguided Zeal. Misguided Zeal. You know, zeal for a goal. You know, we see the Olympics going on, and these athletes have worked very hard for a goal, to win gold or silver or bronze in the Olympics to be counted as one of the greatest athletes in the world. It's a great goal. A lot of hard work goes into it. There are other goals that people have embraced or causes. A lot of people have embraced causes. Let me say this to you. A goal or a cause can be a, a great thing to pursue as long as it's a good goal and a righteous cause. Because if you are pursuing something that's not really a good cause, you might think it is. But if it goes against anything God has said, it's not a good cause. And your zeal, no matter how sincere, is misguided zeal. We know, guys, that since the fall of man, there have always been those people that have embraced a cause. These two guys embraced David's administration and figured, you know what? The end justifies the means. We'll take care of David's enemy and he'll reward us. Wrong. It was a fatal mistake. Fatal mistake on their part. And there's a lot of folks who have hitched their wagon to a star, to a cause, only to find out they got behind the wrong person. Uh, you know, the, the cause was not a righteous cause. But we see these folks all over the place. They embrace these causes, we'll say. And in their mind, the cause is so just, no matter what it takes to bring it to pass, no matter what I have to do, no matter who has to get hurt in the process, if it has to be, it has to be because, you know what, the end justifies the means. We see this with, we'll say, the Islamic religion. We know that um, under Islamic law, the Quran teaches that the whole world has to be Islamicized. Islamic faith has to be the dominant faith in the world before uh, the Quran teaches that there can be world peace. So the whole world has to be Islamicized uh, before there can be true peace in the world. And Islam divides all of humanity into two groups. One called Dara al-Islam and the other called Dara al-Harb. Dara al-Islam means house of peace. All true Muslims belong to the house of peace. Dara al-Harb means house of war. All non-Muslims belong to the house of war. And the Quran teaches that uh, that all true Muslims have to fight with either people that are converted or they're killed because the whole world has to be brought under the Islamic faith. They have to become subject to Allah. Uh, I was coming into, our, uh, into my favorite coffee shop right after 
And the manager, whom I knew, she knew I was a pastor, uh, was visibly shaken still and wanted to know about Islam. And I said, well, you know what the word Islam means, don't you? She goes, yes, peace. No, it means submission. It means submission. And either you submit to Allah or you die is the idea. And we see this in the world where, you know, the Islamic religion is really pushing for this world domination and all. And the idea that, that the whole world has to be brought under a subjection to Allah is a cardinal doctrine of the Islamic faith. Now, to achieve that goal, to bring about and to win that cause, you have to understand how Muslims think. And I'm thinking about fundamentalist Muslims. Not all Muslims are, are this way. But uh, many are what's called fundamentalist Muslims. They really believe in the teachings of the Quran, the Hadith. Of course, it says, you know, kill the Jews on Saturday, kill the Christians on Sunday, right in their teachings. So that's a warrior faith, all right? It's a warrior faith. And the idea is that to bring about your goal, to, to convert the whole world to Islam, it doesn't matter what you have to do. Uh, lying is acceptable. Killing is acceptable, even if it means killing innocent women and children. Because when you're talking about the cause of Islam, the end justifies the means. Uh, everyone has to be converted before there is world peace, which is a kind of a joke. Because in areas of the world where there's only the Islamic faith, they're killing each other. Shias and Sunnis have been fighting for years and years. All right, So this idea that you know, if the whole world was only all made up of Muslims and we'd have peace is, you know, uh, not true. But this is where they're coming from. Their cause is so righteous and just that no matter what it takes to bring it to pass, it has to be. Well, we see variations of this everywhere. In fact, our own country, we see many politicians that want open borders in our country. And the free flow of people coming in from anywhere, primarily from Mexico. Now, let me just stop and say this. My grandfather was from Mexico. I'm not talking like an, as an outsider, okay? But we have politicians in this country who want open borders. And they don't like the term illegal aliens. It sounds too negative. It makes, you know, it makes these folks coming into the country illegally sound like criminals. So they've opted to call these folks undocumented immigrants. Undocumented immigrants. And while many of these people coming in, especially from Mexico, are just wanting a better life, and I can't blame them for that, many others are criminals that know they can come to this country and take refuge in any one of a number of, of sanctuary cities where they will not be turned over to ICE and deported. Now, these are liberal cities that are defying federal law by not turning these folks over to the federal government for deportation. You remember... Oh, it was uh, July 1st, 2015, when Kate Steinle was walking with her dad on Pier 14 in San Francisco, a sanctuary city, when she was shot in the back by an illegal uh, alien. The man that shot her, his name was Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, he had been deported five times and had come back the sixth time and realized that if he, you know, took up residence in San Francisco, he wouldn't be hassled, wouldn't be arrested, wouldn't be deported again. So that's where he made his home. And he shoots Kate in the back when she's walking on the pier with her dad. And as she collapsed into her father's arms, Jim Steinle said her dying words were, 
Help me, Dad. Now, my daughter is just a little younger than Kate was. I can imagine walking with my daughter on a beautiful day when all of a sudden a gunshot rings out, hits her, she falls into my arms and says, Dad, help me, and dies in my arms. When confronted with their misguided zeal and turning a blind eye to illegal aliens that had criminal records living in San Francisco, the leaders of San Francisco were incredulous that their sanctuary city policy was being challenged. I saw the reporter, I saw it on the news, who went to the city hall and confronted the city leaders. You should have saw the looks of arrogance on their faces. How dare you question our wisdom? How dare you come against our righteous cause? And furthermore, they were unmoved and undeterred by Kate's death because in their minds the greater good was being served. And you know what? When you're trying to serve the greater good, what is the greater good? An open border society and, in fact, an open borders world where we all live as one big happy family. When you're trying to bring that about in your city, in this country, look, if a few innocents have to get killed once in a while by an illegal alien, that's just the price of doing business. That's just collateral damage. I mean, you know, in any war, people die, innocent people. We are serving the greater good. Our cause is just, so on and so forth. Folks, we can go on and on, whether we're talking about how the IRS is targeting Christians and conservatives in an effort to diminish or even destroy our influence in this country because our government right now is run by progressives, by liberals. And you know what? These folks think they alone know what's best for America. I mean, what's best for America in their enlightened minds is Marxism slash socialism, because everyone who is enlightened knows that socialism is what's best for us as a nation, and whatever it takes to achieve that goal, well, regardless of whose rights get trampled on in the process, is okay because our cause is just and good, they believe, and so the end justifies the means whether we're talking about business, politics, or religion, zeal for a goal can be a good thing, as long as it doesn't cross the line into an, into an anything-goes, end-justifies-the-means mentality where you wind up violating what God has said to achieve your goal, lying, stealing, cheating, hurting, or even killing others. Look, let me just say this to you guys, okay, because I realize we've taken the passage and we're not kind of really broadening it out, all right? But as I was praying about, Lord, you know, what, be, what beyond the simple historical teaching can we glean from this? And I was praying about that for a while, and finally the Lord, I think, spoke to me and said, look, these two men felt very committed to their cause, to help David become the unified king over all the kingdom. And so they set down a path to help him, a way that seemed right to them. But in the end, it cost them their life. And I think God wants all of us to know that, look, whatever goal you have set for yourself, if it's building a business or whatever it might be, uh, if you're a politician and your goal is to uh, get elected and make a difference in office or whatever, whatever it is, whatever you've embraced, if it violates anything God has said, 
It's an unrighteous cause. It's unacceptable. I don't care how much zeal you have. I don't care how much passion you have. In this election cycle, we see so many people are so committed to getting their candidate elected that many of them don't care if they lie, steal, cheat, uh, defame the other. It's all about winning. And I'll tell you what, it, it's abhorrent to God to see this kind of thing going on. In God's eyes, the end never justifies the means. If we're trying to accomplish something and we do it through underhanded means, through things that violates what God has said, then God, he rejects it. He won't bless that. In a couple of chapters, we're going to see how David had zeal to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, where the people could begin to properly worship God again. The nation was not really worshiping God because the Ark was not in Jerusalem. We'll read about that in chapter 6. But David, wanted, David was a man of worship. He wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem so the nation could begin to properly worship God again. Hey, that was his passion. And it was a good goal. As we're going to see, though, he didn't do it the way God had prescribed the ark was to be moved. Why not? Uh, maybe he didn't know what God had said. Or maybe in his zeal he just felt like it doesn't really matter because the end justifies the means. Getting the ark back to Jerusalem, that's all that matters. I know this is not the way God intended us to do it, putting it on a cart and pulling it behind some oxen. But you know what? Whatever gets it there, the end justifies the means. Well, it didn't work out so well as we're going to see. In fact, one man died in the process. And guys, it's really along those lines. David had a zeal for God in that regard, right? And it's along those lines that I want to now focus the rest of our time this morning, a zeal for God that is misguided and therefore dangerous. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Of course, I'm sure you're all familiar with Romans 10. We'll just read the first two verses. Paul the Apostle writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but listen, it's not according to knowledge. There are many today who have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. I think Muslims would lead the list as we just talked about, but others are right there too, Hindus, Buddhists, and so on. Here in Romans 10, Paul had the Jewish people in view when he described those whose zeal for God was passionate but misguided. If you went to Israel with us last November, or you've been there uh, you know, in the past, you saw how that the Orthodox Jews, many of them, and the rabbis, you see them walking around with the long black coats, the black hats. Some of them have the uh, sideburn curls coming down the sides of their faces, right? If you, if you went to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall with us in Jerusalem, uh, they were everywhere, weren't they? And you saw them with the prayer books in their hands, and there were bobbing up and down, their heads were bobbing up and down as they prayed their prayers. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And Paul goes on to say this in Romans 10, verse 3. He says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness, is the idea, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God, or have not submitted themselves to the way God has said was the way to righteousness for christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes so 
the Father sent the Son to be the Messiah of Israel and of all mankind. The Messiah, of course, went to the cross and died that we might have righteousness be saved. The Jewish people rejected their Messiah for the most part and continued on looking at the law, what they do for God as a way to earn God's favor, earn a place in heaven. You know, the Jewish people, as Paul points out, and not just the Jewish people, many others. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I'll just talk about that more in a moment. But there are many people, Jews, Catholics, and many others, that are ignorant of God's righteousness that he has provided through Jesus Christ. And instead of coming to God, coming to him through the way he has provided, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But they don't want to do that. They have too much invested in their religious works. I mean, the Jewish people, I mean, they meticulously kept the law all their lives. And now all of a sudden, here comes Jesus Christ saying, you know what? You'll never get to heaven by keeping the law. Paul would go on to say, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. It doesn't make you righteous, just points your guilt out. But you know what? If you've got all those years invested in all those ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices and keeping of feast days and so on, you don't really want to let that go, do you? Just like I've talked to Roman Catholics. And I, again, my wife and I were raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to Roman Catholics. And as I begin to tell them what's involved in true salvation. And it's not works and rituals and ceremonies and so on. It's just the blood of Christ and believing in him. I just, no sooner I get started, many of them shut me down. Uh, 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 I was born a Catholic. I'm going to die Catholic. What are they saying? They're saying, look, I've got too much invested in my religious system. I've gone to too many masses, lit too many candles, prayed too many rosaries. I, I can't let go of it. I can't let go of it because in my mind, it pleases God. Someday I'm going to stand before him and he's going to say, good job. I've been keeping track of how many roses you've prayed. Wow. You know, that kind of thing. That, that's what they're thinking. Folks, let me say it again. I've said it before. There are only two religions on the face of the earth. The religion of human accomplishment and the religion of, excuse me, the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Every religion and religious system on the planet fits into the religion of human achievement. What I'm going to do through my works, whatever those works are, what I'm going to do for God that will ingratiate me to him and earn my salvation. There's only one faith on the planet that teaches the religion of divine accomplishment, and it's not a religion, it's a relationship, Christianity. Religion says do, as in what you're going to do for God to earn heaven. Christianity says what? Done. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. He did the work. He paid the price. Religion, guys, whether you know it or not, is rooted in the idea of obligation. In fact, I think uh, it comes from a Latin word that means basically obligation. Religion is my obligations that I need to fulfill so that I can please God. When my wife and I were still Roman Catholics before we got saved, we got married and started going back to the Catholic Church because, you know what, we're adults now. We're grown-ups, okay? We're, we're married. It's time to stop acting like, you know, young kids. Let's get serious and start going back to church. 
I can honestly say to you that when I left Catholic service, I felt good. Not because I had really learned anything, but because I felt like I had done my duty. It was all about my obligation, fulfilling what I had to do to please God, so that he would well, not hammer on me, he would bless me, okay? But religion, though, is rooted in a man-centered, works-oriented approach to God. Man-centered. I'm going to develop a system of religion whereby I'm going to show everybody that I'm good enough to please God and get into heaven. That's why it's rooted in pride. It's all about what I'm going to do for God. Lord, you know, watch me go. Christianity, of course, comes from God. It's not man's efforts to reach God. It's God coming down to meet us. Uh, where we are, Jesus Christ came down, right? And Christianity comes from God and is Christ-centered and grace-oriented in the sense that the Bible teaches salvation is something we, uh, not something we earn through our works. It's a free gift we receive by our faith in Christ. Look, if you were to ask an Orthodox Jew today, you know, you say to them, him or her, you know, you're very zealous. You're very zealous for God. But what are you doing about your sin? You have no temple. You have no priesthood. You have no sacrifices being offered. I mean, how are your sins being atoned for? And they will tell you, just like Roman Catholics will tell you and many others, well, I believe that if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, when I stand before God and the scale is tipped in my favor, he'll let me into heaven. And many people are harboring under that misconception. It's a works righteousness concept. I work, and God pronounces me righteous. Christianity is Christ's work. And if I believe in him, God pronounces me righteous. But they'll tell you, look, if I, you know, if I live a good life, and um, I believe that you know, God will accept me into heaven, not realizing what God said to Israel back in Leviticus 17, verse 11, and Paul reiterated in Hebrews 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Because sin requires death. The soul that sins shall surely die. The beautiful thing about it was that God didn't want us to die for our sins. He so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in Christ would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. This is what God has done for us. This is what his great love for us. But somebody had to die. Sinners can't die for sinners. We couldn't die for ourselves. We'd take the innocent dying for the guilty. And there's only one innocent man who was ever born on this planet who was worthy to die for sinners. His name is Jesus Christ. Well, didn't the Jews know this? Didn't Jesus tell them this, the way of righteousness and all? Sure he did. Paul says Israel, Israel was ignorant. The Jews were ignorant. Why? Because God never told them the truth? No, but because they rejected the truth. They didn't want to listen and learn. They had too much invested in their religious works. There is an ignorance that comes from a lack of information, and then there is an ignorance that comes from a willful rejection of what God has said. You know, on the Day of Judgment, when people stand before God and God does not accept their good deeds to get them into heaven, they're shocked, they're horrified. Read Matthew 7, verses 21 to 3. 
Oh, but Lord, didn't we serve you? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy? And so on and so forth. He's going to say to them, I never knew you depart from me. Because you were putting all your faith in your church affiliation, in your works, you didn't really believe in me. Your life didn't change. There was no fruit. And yet so many people are convinced that as long as I'm sincere, as long as I, I'm sincere, whatever I do for God doesn't matter as long as I'm sincere. God will accept it and let me into heaven. When I read my Bible, I don't see that God accounts sincerity for righteousness. I see where God accounts faith in his Son for righteousness. I was going to get into a thing about Cain and Abel. I think you can read that on your own. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, where the very first two brothers in the face of the earth, Cain and Abel, brought offerings to God to honor him. Abel brought an offering of what God had prescribed, what God had said. And God accepted it, and Abel was blessed. Cain apparently brought God an offering of his own choosing, whatever he felt like. God no doubt laid it out, these are the offerings that are acceptable. And Cain said, ah, I don't like that. You know, God's going to take what I give him, and he better like it. There's a lot of folks like that today. I don't care what God has said, he's lucky to have me on his team. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm sincere. Oh, really? <laughs> when you stand before you, you can talk to him about that, all right? But the Bible condemns what is called the way of Cain. Jude, verse 11. The way of Cain, guys, is self-styled, do-it-yourself worship. It's where I'm going to just give to God what I think is right. There's a way that seems right to a man. I have a way that I feel is right. And God should accept it, and so on and so forth. And even though God has said what he has you know, said very clearly... What we have to do to approach him, we've got to come through his son Jesus Christ by faith. No, they're going to offer him religion, works, lighting of candles, praying of rosaries, whatever else they're offering God. And they're saying to him, Lord, this is what I think you ought to accept. And this is what I'm going to give you. Again, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. Once again, let me wind this down. There are many who think that even though they have sinned many times over the course of their life, if they do enough good things, quote-unquote, whatever that means, those good things will cancel out the bad stuff and God will reward them with heaven. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. They don't realize. The Bible says if you have one sin on your soul your entire life, that will keep you out of heaven because to get to heaven you have to be what? perfect well that's ridiculous nobody's perfect one man was his name is jesus and when he said to get into heaven you have to be perfect and the disciples were baffled they were beside themselves and they said lord who can then get into heaven he said with man it's impossible but with god all things are possible because our salvation was not going to be a product of our effort. It was going to be a product of divine grace. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He came down to die in our place, right? Um, 
again, so many think that because of all their good deeds, they're sure that when they stand before Jesus Christ someday, he's going to be very pleased with them, reward them handsomely. Even as the two brothers in our passage this morning were convinced that David would reward them for their misguided service. Of course, they didn't realize it was misguided until David basically told them that. But even as David sentenced them to death, listen to me now, someday the son of David, Jesus Christ, will sentence those who had zeal without knowledge to eternal death in the lake of fire called hell. Guys, when it comes to getting into heaven, we either come God's way or we don't get there. In other words, listen to me now, the means justifies the end. And the means is the gospel. The gospel. Which tells us that God is offering us heaven as a free gift. And if you don't just receive it by faith and say thank you. If you try to receive it, oh thank you Lord, now let me work for it and I'll show you I'm worthy. Give me that back, God says. You can't have it. You can't have a, if you're going to try to work for a free gift, you can't have it, God said. But I don't want you boasting, okay? I don't want you standing in heaven boasting how great you were to get here. I want heaven to be a place where sinners who were proclaimed righteous through the blood of my son just bow their heads and say, God, thank you. I don't deserve to be here. But by your grace, I'm here to spend eternity with you. Again, I'll, I'll leave you with the words of Paul to Titus. And guys, I can't tell you how many times I've quoted these, this verse to Catholics. Not by works of righteousness, Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. I don't get into heaven because of my works of righteousness. I get into heaven because God has been merciful to me. How? By sending his son to die in my place. And I've been washed by the Holy Spirit in the blood of Christ. And God has proclaimed me righteous by faith, not because of my works. And so guys, just again, getting back to this idea of misguided zeal, pursuing a goal or a cause that you have to achieve by violating what God has said. Look, don't be taken in by that. Again, the end doesn't justify the means. The end doesn't justify the means. Look, you want to be zealous for something? Be zealous for truth. The truth in God's word. You want to commit your life to a cause? Commit it to the cause of Christ. If you commit your life to the cause of Christ, which is being a light in this dark world, going out into all the world and preaching the good news, when you stand before Jesus Christ someday, believe me when I tell you this, he will not send you to hell, but he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Now enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the cause that I've committed my life to. I know many of you committed your lives to. Can I encourage the rest of you? This is the thing, the only cause in this world that's really worth living and dying for. See, it's an eternal cause. And when you affect people for Jesus Christ in time, the effects last for eternity. They will be forever saved. To me, there is no greater cause than that. It is not misguided. It is not an unrighteous cause. It's the most righteous cause in the universe. 
May God give us grace to make sure that we're on the right path. Not a path that seems right, but it goes against God's word, but a path that is truly right because it's leading to Jesus, to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We see in this passage, Lord, we see misguided zeal. We see men committing themselves to a way they thought was right, but in the end it led to death. How many people in this culture of ours have committed themselves to some cause or some way that they believe was righteous. And maybe they're religious and thought that this cause was going to lead them to you someday in heaven. But it's all about religious works. Father, open their eyes. Show them what you've shown us. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done that get us into heaven, but by your mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ, who we receive as Lord and Savior by faith. We thank you, Lord. Give us grace to serve this cause with all our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.